in our final, final uh, sermon in this series that we've been in uh, since January. And our series has been called Growth God's Way. And uh, we have been learning and exploring uh, most of the New Testament, primarily in Acts. Uh, but we've been asking the question, uh, what do churches that experience growth in God's way look like? Uh, what are some of the things that they do? What do they not do? What do they avoid? What characterizes them? What are, what are some of their habits or practices? And we have seen 10 of them. And so I want to... Um, use this as a way of reminding you on the way out. Um, I've printed out a nice summary sheet of this sermon series for you. And so if you like to have things by way of reminders, uh, by way of uh, remembering sermons, uh, things that we have been through, you can pick this up on the way out. Certainly don't have to, uh, but if you like it in nice, neat format, you can see all of the 10 things that characterize churches uh, that grow God's way. And this morning, we're really in part two of sermon number 10. And so I've actually kind of squeaked out another one here. So you'll have to <laughs> forgive me for that. Um, and uh, we're in First Thessalonians, and we're really going to focus on chapter 1. Uh, last week, we focused on verses 1 through 5 in the first chapter of Thessalonians. And uh, this morning, we're going to focus on verses 6 through 10. And so part two of, uh, of this sermon. Uh, the first sermon of this last sermon said, if you will, uh, I entitled Gospel Presentation. And what we looked at last week really was four uh, elements, four things that uh, God uses in a gospel presentation to really impact people's hearts. In fact, we saw, if you remember, uh, four Ps. Uh, We saw that there was a proclamation of the gospel, that there's verbal content to a powerful gospel presentation. Uh, We saw that there's uh, power from the Holy Spirit, that is, the Holy Spirit speaks through us and into the hearts and the lives of those who are lost to understand and believe in the gospel. Uh, there's proclamation, there's power, and then there's a couple other things. Per, uh, personal certainty. We saw that uh, gospel presentations that are effective, that lead people to Christ, have a certain element of personal certainty to it. That is, the messenger, you and I, we actually believe what we're saying. Uh, and we have actually been transformed by the Jesus that we're giving to others. Finally, uh, the fourth P is that there's personal integrity, and that means that we live lives uh, as best we can under the influence of the, of the Holy Spirit to live lives of personal integrity so that we're not just um, salesmen uh, pitching some product to be sold, but we have lives of personal integrity that back up the gospel. And so last week we saw gospel presentation. This week in our final sermon, I've entitled it Gospel Reverberation. Gospel Reverberation. And last week I used, um, rather ironically, um, an image of an earthquake. And I found it, um, ironic is the only word I can use, um, that on the heels of that sermon there was a huge earthquake, as we all know, um, in the Pacific Rim. In fact, I've heard certain statistics on that. I've heard it might have been uh, the biggest in, they say, 1,500 years is one source that I, I heard. It, it was a very large one. And so I used this image last week, and I said that in the lives of the Thessalonians, and in my life and in your life, when this kind of a gospel presentation is brought, when it has these four elements involved, what happens is an earthquake-size conversion. That is, our life is so shaked, there's a fault line, a spiritual fault line. We place our faith in Jesus, and there is an earthquake. And then I use the image that following that, there are aftershocks, there are repercussions. I'm going to use the word reverberations. And as we saw rather vividly um, this week, uh, that the, there are reverberations to any earthquake. In fact, let me share with you a few notes that I had. This a few uh, a few notes from the Associated Press on this earthquake, demonstrating how widespread, how powerful the reverberations of this earthquake 
were. Uh, a couple notes here. Uh, the AP, Associated Press, says that this earthquake was 700 more times more, 700 times more powerful than the earthquake that shook Haiti. 700 times more powerful than Haiti. Um, it says that the rupture was six, 186 miles long. So we talk about reverberations of an earthquake. 186 miles long, 93 miles wide, and uh, they said 80, uh, let's see, let me get this right, um, 80 miles off the eastern seashore is where it happened. Oh, here's what I'm looking for. 15 miles below seashore, sea level, uh, is where this happened. Also, I read that there was one island by the name of Honshu that moved eight feet. A whole island that moved eight feet because of this. Um, Also, it said, and this is something I found really interesting, that it apparently sped up the Earth's rotation 0.6 of a microsecond. Isn't that amazing that an earthquake can actually speed up, I think probably forever, as far as I understand it, um, our whole Earth? Rotation. It's an ama- just amazing reverberations of this kind of gospel, of this kind of earthquake. And w- what I really want us to see this morning is this. While we have seen this week and continue, we'll, uh, we'll c- continue to see that this kind of an earthquake with this kind of a magnitude has far-reaching repercussions, far-reaching re- reverberations, um, so does the gospel. When the gospel takes hold of a person and a person believes the gospel, it is not just a small earthquake, but there are reverberations that impact and go to the very depth of the person's life. And not only does it affect us personally in every area of our life, but it should, and it's intended to, go beyond our walls. It's intended to, as the video said, cause us to lead beyond our walls. It's intended that the gospel not just be something that we hear and hear and that we experience and hear, but the gospel be something that we allow other people to experience out there beyond our walls. And so this morning, gospel reverberations. I think we're going to be challenged. Last week in verses 1 through 5, we kind of put ourselves in the shoes of Paul and his missionary band, if you will. And so Paul, with his, with his missionary band, they came to Thessalonica and they presented the gospel. And we put ourselves in their shoes and we said, do we present that kind of a gospel? Does our gospel presentation include these four elements? This week, we're going to put ourselves in the shoes of the Thessalonians, that they received the gospel and then they allowed the gospel to be transformative in their own life. And so we learned from Paul this week in the latter part of this chapter we're going to be challenged and we're going to see several, in fact, four gospel reverberations. What effect should the gospel have in my life and in your life? When you place your faith in Jesus and it's real and you're converted and the Spirit indwells you and you begin to have a new heart and a change of life, what should that look like? What should be the reverberations of the gospel? in your life and in my life. We're going to see four things. And so this is what I'd like us to do. Um, I want us to read all of chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, and then we're really going to center on verses 6 through 10. So let's read this together, uh, beginning uh, to get some context. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And he begins, uh, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God our Father, uh, our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit 
and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And so we have the gospel presentation side. Now we get into the gospel reverberation side. Verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Acacia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and in Acacia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So we have the reading of God's word. Uh, What we're going to do this morning is see four, uh, what I would call gospel reverberations. And so if you're taking note, jot down one, two, three, four, and we're going to see one reverberation per verse. And so we're going to start in verse six. We're going to go six, seven, eight, well, nine, ten. So uh, we're going to see four gospel reverberations, and we begin uh, with verse six. So the first gospel reverberation, the first effect that the gospel should have when we receive it and believe in it is that it should cause us, number one, to imitate Jesus. That's what we see in verse 6, is that when the gospel is received, it begins to reverberate into our life and we begin to have a desire to live out the life of Jesus, to imitate Jesus. Notice the word in verse 6. It's, Paul says, once you receive this gospel, you became imitators You became imitators of us, that is Paul and the missionaries that were with him, and of the Lord, that is referring to Jesus. And so they imitated Paul, and they also ultimately imitated Jesus. But notice how they did this. Specifically, he tells us how they imitated or mimicked both Paul and Jesus. It says specifically, you received the word, that is the gospel that we were talking about, for you received the gospel in much affliction, and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And so how did they imitate Paul? How were these believers, once they accepted the gospel, how did they look like Jesus? How did they look like Paul? Well, how they were was this. Once they received the gospel, they faced opposition. People didn't like them. Their fellow pagan brothers didn't like that they weren't worshiping in the idol feasts and festivals. They didn't like that they were turning away from idolatry and immorality. And so they faced persecution. They faced affliction just like Paul did when he went into a city and ultimately just like Jesus did on the cross. Turn one chapter ahead with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 because in verse 13 through 16 what we'll see is that Paul further explains this idea and we're going to see some of the things, some of the persecution or the affliction that this church Uh, went through, and we're going to see how they imitated Paul and ultimately how they imitated Jesus. And so verse 13 of chapter 2, verse 16, um, read this uh, together with me. Verse 13, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, so there it is, you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And notice this, for you brothers, Notice the word, became imitators. Same word. For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, that are in Judea, that is where Jerusalem is. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. And 
and to displease God and oppose all mankind. And so basically what happened was they went in and they weren't well received. The gospel took root, but they endured suffering. But the main point I want us to see here is the idea that when we receive the gospel, we, we become imitators. We become imitators of Jesus. There's an inbred desire, I think, in our hearts, in our regenerated hearts, to want to be like Jesus, and also to want to be like those who are like Jesus. The word here, uh, imitators, is in the Greek, uh, mimites, which sounds like our word, what? Mimic, right? And so when we mimic someone, what do we do? We act just like them. We see them doing something, and we follow their lead, if you will. We mimic them. Oftentimes, we see this in our children, uh, do we not? Those of you who have children, you know that uh, more is... Uh, they say more is caught than taught, right? And so eventually when you have kids, you see that they have the same mannerisms you do, don't they? They say the same phrases that you do. They want to do the things that you do. They want to mimic you. And uh, it's a really fun thing having a, a two-year-old because he can talk and he can you know, begin to have his own personality. But you know, for instance, Asher imitates me uh, quite a bit. Um, so when I say words like, oh, sweet, He'll say, sweet. And, uh, you know, uh, the other day we were at Pizza Hut having, uh, having pizza with Shelly's mom and dad. And so I like ranch dressing with my pizza. So I get my pizza and I dip every bite. I dip every bite. And uh, so Asher was sitting in my lap and he got his pizza and he was, he was dipping every bite and ranch dressing. And it, my father-in-law really cracked up. He's like, look, look, Janice, look, you know, and I'm eating my pizza and he's eating his pizza. Uh, one example would be uh, a couple days ago, uh, maybe it was yesterday, I was shaving. And so I was... Uh, there and I was, you know, doing the shaving thing, filling up the water and getting my stuff. And Asher said, me, 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 which means, of course, he wants to do that. And he wants to mimic me. He wants to be like me. So I thought, okay, sure. And so he stood up on his little uh, toilet, which is next to our sink. And I gave him just a dab of shaving cream. And he did this, just kind of, you know, put it everywhere, you know. And he said, and so I started to do that. And he said, me, 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 which means he wants a razor too. And I was like, well, let's not do that. And so I took the head off one of the razors, you know. I said, here you go. And so I'm shaving, you know, look in the mirror. And he has his little razorless uh, blade, you know. And he's doing this. And I said, good job, Asher. And so I wash my face and he washes his face. And, and this, the point is simple, is that this is like what we do when we become believers. There's this inbred desire that we want to be like Jesus. And not only that, but we want to be like our spiritual parents. Do you notice this? It says that they became imitators of us. That is, first of all, they learned to imitate Jesus by learning to imitate Paul. Isn't that an interesting concept? That we grow to become like Jesus when we look at someone who's a little further along in the faith, someone who's a little more mature, someone who's a little more godly, and we look at them, and we look at them, and, and we notice, man, they act a lot like Jesus. I want to be like them. We imitate our spiritual parents just like they did. And so I want to show you um, a quick video here of Asher imitating me. Uh, it's one of those joys as a pastor. You get to put your kid on the screen. Um, but one of the things that Asher really imitates, uh, imitated of me early on was, um, there you see Asher and Daddy vacuuming. Uh, I'm not... I'm not very good at housework. I think Shelly does most of it because she's more thorough than I am. She's like, did you dust that? I'm like, yeah. She's like, it took you a minute. I'm like, yeah, I dusted it, you know. Um, but I think she maybe trusts me to vacuum because you can't really mess it up, you know. You just vacuum. And so we got him a little vacuum uh, for Christmas. And uh, let me tell you, he loves it. Uh, that's daddy's job. I vacuum. And so he pulled it out and he literally for like a week, he's like, vacuum. 
that he vacuum, and we would vacuum like three times a day, the whole house. I mean, we had the cleanest house, probably in Cisna Park, or at least the cleanest carpet, because I, daddy vacuum, and there he goes. And so he's vacuuming, and, and we're vacuuming, and he's having a good time, and he learned to turn it on, and push it down, and change the setting, and all that stuff. And so this was, I think, our very first uh, video of him trying to mi- mimic me. So we can cut that, guys, as cute as it is, right? We could watch this all day, couldn't we? Or at least I could. Um, but, you know, that's what we do. We mimic our spiritual parents. And, and that's what they wanted to do as well. They wanted to mimic their spiritual parents. And so here's a question for us. If the first repercussion of the gospel in our life is that we want to, de- we want to mimic Jesus, we want to be like him, and then inherently we want to be like those who are like him, the question then becomes, are we becoming more like Jesus? That's the question for me and you. Are we mimicking Christ? Is there, and this is a hard question, is there something inside of you that you would say, I do want to be like Jesus. There's a desire for me to look like him. He is our master, our leader, our teacher. I want to be like him. Are we becoming like him? And here's a harder question. Uh, In the past year, have you become more like Jesus? In the past two years, in the past five years, have you seen a progression in your life so that when you read the Gospels and how Jesus responded, how he reacted, what he did, you see a little bit more and more of yourself? And here's an even harder way to tell. Um, Ask your spouse or a good friend or your son or your daughter. Ask them that question and uh, listen. (laughs) Don't fight back um, and learn Learn from that. Um, so are we imitating? Are we becoming like him? Secondly, one of the ways that's really clear in this text, one of the ways that we mimic Jesus is by learning from those who are doing it better than us. Um, we're all on a spiritual tangent here. Some of us were born as infants. That's the, that's the image that Paul uses. When we come to faith, we're babies. And uh, we're about to have a baby on our own. And when you're a spiritual baby... You're, you're pretty helpless. You're pretty dependent, just like a physical baby is. And so you need milk and feeding and changing and teaching and correction. And then you grow and you become more and more independent. And we're all on this scale. And there's always someone behind us, so to speak, that we can become examples to, which we'll talk about in one second. But there's always someone ahead of us. And one of the main ways, I think, that we grow to become like Jesus is we pick that one or two uh, people and we look at their life and we... We learn from them. We're intentional about spending time with them. We notice how they handle adversity, and we learn from it. We notice how they treat their spouse, and we say, that's how I would like to treat my spouse. We notice how they teach their kids their Bible, how they're intentional about praying with their kids or taking their kids to Awana or or talking about spiritual things, and we say, I want to be like that. We notice how they conduct their business and how they're honest, and their reputation in their, in their town, or maybe it's their devotional habits, or whatever it is. I encourage you to think about maybe one person, maybe two people, who you say, they're following Jesus, they're mimicking Jesus, I want to be, I want to follow them, I want to notice them. So number one, the first gospel reverberation is this inbred desire. We want to be like Jesus. Secondly, uh, not only do we want to imitate Jesus, but the second gospel reverberation is that we become an example to others. Um, and this, there's a particular order there. We imitate Jesus. We imitate those who are like Jesus. And as we pursue that, as we're pursuing those who are ahead of us, so to speak, other Christians, Jesus, they're ahead of us on this scale of growth and holiness and Christ-likeness. But inevitably, as we are on that path, as we're on that track, there are going to be people who are running the same race of the faith, and they're going to be where? 
They're going to be behind us. They're going to be people in front of us. We pursue them as we're pursuing Christ. And there are people behind us. And guess what? They're pursuing us. They're mimicking us. And so the second gospel reverberation is not only do we imitate Jesus, but we, we become examples ourselves. That's point number two. We become examples ourselves. Notice verse 7. Paul says, uh, For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6. So that, what was the result of that? so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and all of the believers in Acacia. So here comes our map. I think it should be in the right place. Uh, just by way of context, notice in the upper left, the, bo- the box Thessalonica. That's where these believers were. It's the little red dot there. And then you'll notice Macedonia was the region that was kind of to the northwest of them. And so Thessalonica, Macedonia was to the north. And then notice down south, uh, modern-day Greece, there was Acacia. And so when Paul talks about these two regions, the region to the north, the region to the south, we can move on from that slide or go back to the verse. Um, what Paul is basically saying is that um, we, as you followed Jesus and as you followed me, um, other people who were behind you, other Christians and other regions, you became their example. They wanted to mimic you, is what he says. This word, uh, example, uh, in the Greek. It's an interesting word. Uh, in the biblical text and outside of the biblical text, it often re- refers to a seal. And it was a seal that was imprinted on wax. So you have this image that, uh, this idea that it's a seal, it's an image, it had some kind of an image or word. And what you would do then is you would imprint uh, that image, that seal on the wax, and what would be left would be an imprint, something that looked almost identical, very similar to the original. Uh, so you could say that what Paul is saying is that they became examples to other believers. You could say that they left their mark. That's what Paul's saying, is that you left your mark, you left your imprint on the, on the lives of other Christians. You see that? You left your mark, you left your imprint. Uh, in fact, when you read through the New Testament, you'll find out that Paul call, called only one church an example. And that's this church. That's pretty high praise that Paul says you became an example for other Christians. And so the, the real question, again, uh, for us is, are we becoming an example for others? We look for others who are ahead of us in the race and we pursue them. And then there are people inevitably who are behind us in the race of faith. And we are to be examples to them. So are we leaving our mark on them? Are you leaving your mark on other Christians? And is it positive? Because we all leave marks on people as we interact together in the body of Christ. We're going to leave our mark on other believers. But is it a good mark? Is it a good imprint? Are you a positive example? Are you rubbing off on other Christians in a way that you could consider positive? Is there someone that you're looking ahead that is behind and you can say, they haven't been a Christian quite as long. Uh, they may not be as mature as me, but man, I really connect with them. We get along. Uh, I've had a similar experience that they do. Is there someone that you can kind of sink your teeth into, so to speak, and become a mentor for? And so what this text is saying is that we need people to become like Jesus in the Christian faith. We need to follow other people, and we need other people to follow us. And so what about you? Are you becoming an example to someone? Are you leaving your mark on another Christian intentionally? Um, I'd really encourage you to do that. I want to have people in my life who are above me, who I look to for guidance, and I look and I learn from them, and I want to have intentionally someone behind me that I can pour into. So, gospel reverberations. We imitate Jesus. We become examples. This is the one we're going to camp on for a bit. 
Number three, the third gospel reverberation is that we reverberate the gospel. I'll repeat that term. We reverberate the gospel. Notice this. This, I think, and I hope and I pray, will be really challenging for us as a church. Verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord, that is the gospel, sounded forth. We'll talk about that word in a bit, in a minute. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia, Macedonia and Acacia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. And so they imitated Jesus. They became examples. The gospel was effective in their own lives. They imitated Jesus. The gospel was effective in the life of others. It affected other Christians. But not only did it affect themselves, not only did it affect other Christians, but it affected the lost. It affected unbelievers. This word, sounded forth, it's a great word in, in the Greek, uh, exekeo, okay, exekeo. Does that sound like any word that means reverberation, exekeo? What does it sound like? Echo, excellent, that's where we get our English word, echo. And so what Paul is essentially saying is that the gospel was received by you personally as a church, but it didn't stay with you. Because that's what an echo does. It originates in you, but then it goes on and on and on and on. It reverberates over a great distance. So I don't know if you've ever been to a place that uh, has extreme echo before. Um, One of the places that we would go to um, was a cavern called Carlsbad Caverns. Anyone ever been there? or heard of it. It's in New Mexico. Um, So we would take vacation. and, And I remember distinctly going, I think, to this cavern. It was such a neat place. You go under, underground and it's cold and there are stalactites and stalagmites or maybe they're opposite. I'm not sure. Uh, but there's all of these wonderful things. There's, a, there's water. But the coolest thing that I remember really liking as a kid is they would let us uh, have like a time period where we could talk and we could yell and we could scream and we would say our name, Trey, and it would go, Trey, Trey. Yeah, and you've done that, right? You've had that experience before. Um, Asher has a little toy, and I should have brought it, but I didn't. It's like, a, I don't know what it's called, but it's like an echo. It looks like, a, looks like a microphone, you know? You know what I'm talking about? And the kid's talking to it, and it kind of echoes, you know? Um, that's the word here. The gospel echoed forth in their lives, into the life of others. Uh, let, me, let me share this image, this quote with you. Dr. Constable says it this way, and I think it's a wonderful image. <clears throat> He says, Paul saw the Thessalonians as amplifiers. What does an amplifier do? It receives sound and it makes it louder, right? We saw the Thessalonians as amplifiers or relay stations that not only received the gospel message, but sent it farther on its way with increased power and scope. Paul's preaching in Thessalonica had the effect of speaking into, public, into a public address microphone. His words were received and repeated by many different speakers in many remote places where his unaided voice could not have reached. And so do you see the main point? They reverberated the gospel. It didn't didn't stop with them. They received it and then they sent it out with increasing power and increasing distance. The gospel echoed forth from them. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is this. Have we merely received the gospel 
and not echoed forth the gospel. I think that's what we do as Christians for the most part. We're happy to receive it and it works in our lives, but we're not amplifiers. We don't, we're not relay stations. The gospel doesn't go forth from us, it just comes into us. The opposite would be... Um, something that receives sound and, sound and muffles it. So I'm sure maybe you've been to the band place in school. Uh, we had, I was in band and I played the trumpet. And in our band hall, they intentionally placed these um, large kind of mat kind of things on the wall. And guess what they were? You know what they are, right? They were sound deadeners because they didn't want the whole school hearing how bad we were when we played together as a band. And so they put all of these sound deadening kind of things all along the wall so that when we played, the sound would go in and it would absorb the sound, right? It wasn't an amplifier. If they really wanted the whole school to, to do that, they would put a microphone and put it over the PA so that all the classes could hear it. But that's not what they wanted. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we like microphones? Are we like amplifiers when the gospel comes to us? Or are we like those sound-deadening boards? Does it come to us and then die? Does it not reverberate? So the question is, does the gospel reverberate through us into our community? Or does it just stop there? Does it just stop? Are we, can, would Paul say this of us? I mean, would he say what he said, which is basically, you were so good at spreading the gospel in your region, remember, north and south, that's a pretty big area. He said, you were so good at reverberating the gospel, I didn't even have to come back. I didn't have to do campaigns in that region or that region because you did it for me. Would Paul say that of us? If Paul planted Grace Bible Church and then came back in 40 years or let's say five years, would he have to go to like Buckley and Loda and like downtown Cisna and North Crescent? Would he have to come back and say, you didn't reverberate the gospel. You're not doing your job. I have to come back. That's what Paul means when he says this, when he says so that we need not say anything. That's what he means. He means I don't have to come back. You're doing it for me. And that's what Paul wanted. He planted churches that then would go forth and spread the gospel. So do we do that? Here's a couple ways that we can tell. And this is where it gets hard. This is like gut check uh, for me and for everyone. Are we a reverberating church? Or are we a sound, deadening, bored church that just receives the sound but does not send it forth. Uh, here's the first way, maybe one that way that we, can, that we can tell. This is a personal evaluation. If you want to share out loud, feel free, although I wouldn't encourage you to. Um, so here's the question. I want you to think about the past year, maybe the past two years, if you will. Think back about the conversations that you've had, about the relationships that you have. How many times have you verbally articulated spiritual truth about Jesus? How many times have I sat across my desk or sat across the coffee shop table or sat in the car with someone? How many times have I, have you, in the past year, two years, you can even say three years, how many gospel conversations have you had? Because that will help determine if you are a gospel reverberator or if I am a gospel soundboard that just takes in the gospel. Um, so think about that. Because if it's few, like mine might be fewer than I would like, um, then we're not a gospel reverberating church. We're a soundboard. We, we are not amplifiers. Number two, uh, 
how do we understand the gospel? Because how we answer that question will help us determine if we reverberate the gospel or if we don't. How do we understand the nature of the gospel? Uh, Vance Havner says this, and I want to read this quote. Vance Havner says this about the gospel. The gospel is not something we come to church to hear, or I would add, for others to hear, although we hope they do. It's something we go from church to tell. And that's the heart of that video. Uh, it's, the gospel is something, it's not something we come to church to hear, it's something we go to church, go from church to, to tell. And so here's, here's the hard question. Let's say there's a friend, and I hope you have a friend like this, or many friends like this, and they're not a, they haven't placed their faith in Jesus, as far as you know. They're not born again Christian. Um, and, and let's say that friend, let's say you want them to hear the gospel. Let's say you want them to hear the good news that Jesus Christ died for their sins, rose from the dead, conquered sin in their life, co- conquered death, took the punishment of God for them, and can give them eternal life and changed personhood. Um, let's say you want them to hear that. What do you do? What do you do? Because what you do, what your primary thought about the means of the gospel going forth will help determine whether you're a gospel reverberator or you're not. Because if you think in your mind, well, I'm just going to get them to come to church. That's how I want them to hear the gospel. I'm going to get them to come to church. So maybe they can come to Easter, or maybe they can come to Christmas, or maybe, you know, on baby dedication, they'll come. And that's good. We want them to come. Invite them. I'm not dissuading you from doing that. Do, come, they'll hear the gospel. Hopefully we preach Jesus Christ crucified for our sins, risen from the dead every Sunday. We want to hear that. Um, but if that's how you think that that person is going to be saved, if you think it's primarily my job uh, to save Cisna Park and for them to all come into our building to hear the gospel, then you misunderstand the gospel. <laughs> because we need the gospel, as the video said. We need the gospel in here, and they need the gospel out there. It's not something for them to come in here. It's something for us to go and tell. And so how do you answer that question? Well, determine largely whether we are a church that reverberates the gospel or not. Number four. Number four. We've seen some gospel reverberations. We imitate Jesus when we receive the gospel. We become examples to those kind of behind us in in the walk. We then, in turn, reverberate that gospel, not in our hearts, but outside our walls. Number four, the last gospel reverberation is found in verses 9 and 10. And I would say, this is how I've I've phrased it. We turn uh, from idols to Jesus. Or you could say, we turn to Jesus from idols. It it doesn't matter. Either way works. But there is a turning. There uh, There is a transfer of worship that happens in our hearts. We turn from idols to Jesus. Let's read verses 9 and 10 uh, one more time. Verses 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so we turn from idols to Jesus. Notice the very first phrase. This is, this is uh, pretty astounding. Paul says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. This is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, man, when I hear from people in Macedonia and when I hear from people in Acacia that are believers, you know what I found out? I found out that they became believers because of you. I found out that you were the ones that led them to Christ. I found out that it was your testimony that caused them to place their faith in Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. He says, man, I'm hearing from other people, people that you have led to Christ 
your testimony. And I know it because I was there, but they're reiterating it back to me. And then this is what he says about their conversion. This was their gospel uh, receiving uh, moment. Uh, basically, they did a couple things. They turned from God to idols. That's the first part. They turned to God from idols um, to serve the living and the true God. And so I don't want to... We've talked about idolatry in the past couple weeks quite a bit, so I'm not going to really talk too much uh, about this. But basically, what I want you to see is that there's a transfer of worship. Um, there were idols all over the place back then. There are idols all, all over the place now. We worship our idols, whether it's the idol of self or money or success or sports or our kids or our spouse or success or our business or whatever it may be. There are idols out there. There were then and there are now. And we worship them before we place our faith in Christ. That's what we live for. We find ultimate satisfaction in our farm. We find ultimate satisfaction in our business. We find our sense of meaning and purpose in our kids. And there are idols. And what Paul says is that when we receive the gospel, the reverberation happens is that we turn from that to the living God and ultimately we turn to Jesus. And Jesus is most satisfying. That's what we live for. That's what we were made to do is to know him and to make him known and to serve him. And so we turn from worshiping that to worshiping Jesus. So that happens. Has it happened to you? Has it happened in your life? I think that's what happens. We, as unbelievers, we place our faith in Jesus and Jesus is in the throne of our hearts, but then we can very easily kind of place those idols back on the throne of our hearts. And, and, and it's a process. I think it's a process of dethroning the idols in our life. But there's a point in time to where Jesus is our ultimate love, desire, satisfaction, joy. Has that happened for you? Have you turned from idols to the living and true God? Secondly, uh, not only do we turn from those idols to God, but then, verse 10, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Most likely uh, referring to the wrath of the tribulation, the time uh, between uh, and before Jesus' return. There is an outpouring of God's wrath on the earth. If you want to read about that, turn to Revelation. Uh, Jesus delivers the church from the wrath to come. But I want to... I want us to see this. Notice, don't miss this. They turn from their idols to God and specifically to Jesus and they wait for him to wait for his son from heaven. They were waiting with eager expectation, active waiting for Jesus. This is an interesting word because oftentimes when we think of the idea of wait, I'm going to wait for something. What's the image that we have in mind? I'm going to wait at the checkout line. So what does that entail? We sit there and we don't move. And we look at the candy, and well, that Snickers looks good. No, Billy, you can't have that. Whatever, you know, we're waiting, and then we look at the magazines, we're like, not going to look there, um, you know. And so, you know, we wait, and it's passive, right? That's what we think of most of the time when we wait. It's a passive, we, it's, it's inactive. But that's not what this word means. This word means inactive waiting. So we're eagerly longing something that we know is coming, something that's going to happen, but we don't just sit on our rear ends. We're actively doing things in preparation for, notice that, in preparation for that event. So, by way of illustration, as we wrap up here, um, Shelly and Asher and I had uh, the great privilege of going to Texas for, for, uh, for Christmas, and uh, it was a really good time. Um, and as I was talking to my mom in the weeks or maybe days ahead of time, I found out, of course, as most mothers do, uh, she was eagerly awaiting our return. Um, she was looking forward for us to come home to Texas to eat some good Mexican food and barbecue. 
Amen. Um, and that's what we did at Texas, uh, along with seeing family and friends and those kind of things. But we ate good food too, And as I digress. Um, so she was actively waiting for us. And so mom didn't just say, oh, honey, I can't wait for you to come. Uh, but when you get here, the house is going to be dirty and you're not going to have any food. And No, what, what do mothers do when they wait for their sons to come home from college, from Illinois? They're not passive, are they? No, of course not. They clean the house so that it's spick and span so that when I walk in that room, there's not a trace of dirt. And she asks, asks us two or three times, what does Asher like to eat? What would you like to eat? What can I make you? Should I have some cookies ready? And we were, got, we were there and there was all these cookies that were ready and Christmas stuff and yummy food, all of my favorites. She, the point is, is that mom was waiting for us to get home, but she wasn't just sitting on her duff. She was actively waiting for us to be here. And that's what Christians do. That's what I want to do is I want to turn from my idols to love Jesus and to wait for him. Notice what it doesn't say. And to wait for the salvation that he's going to bring. And to wait for our new transformed resurrected bodies. And to wait for the moment where there will be no more tears. And to wait for the moment we're reconnected with our uh, uh, people, our loved ones who have passed away in Christ. All of those things are true, right? All of those things are belovedly true and we should wait for them. But that's not what they were wanting the most. What were they wanting the most? Jesus. They wanted Jesus. That's what they wanted. They wanted him. And so the final gospel reverberation is we turn from idols and we wait for Jesus. And so I want to ask you this, and I want to ask me this. Are we actively waiting for Jesus or are we passively waiting for Jesus? Because if we know that Jesus is coming home, just like my mom knew we were coming home, and we want it to be tidy and ship-shape, and we want it to be pleasing to the one who's coming home, then what should we be doing? We should be doing his work. We should be serving in the church. We should be loving him and pursuing him and all of these things. But we're not just waiting. We are actively waiting for the return of Christ so that when he comes back, he doesn't say, what did you do for me? (laughs) How did you prepare for my coming? Nothing? And we're like, well, no. (laughs) Um actively waiting for Jesus. So, in conclusion, um, just like the earthquake in Japan um, was devastating, was huge, caused a major rift way down deep under some ocean somewhere, it was life-changing. So the gospel, when it came to the Thessalonians, and hopefully to me and you, was life-changing, was a seismic shift in our hearts that then didn't just stay there, but it reverberated and as we will continue to see, the, gospel, uh, uh, the, the earthquake and the reverberations in Japan has far, far-reaching implications, far-reaching reverberations. And while those reverberations and while those, uh, while those results are very devastating and deadly, the reverberations of the gospel in our heart bring life and health and peace and salvation to other people as well. And so, is the gospel reverberating in you and from you and to others? I pray that Paul would be able to say, as he did with this church, that the word of the Lord has sounded forth from them in Buckley and in Milford and in Cisna Park and in our neighbor's house house and at Kellert Lake, and it's gone forth. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for 
the example of these believers, none of whom uh, names we know, uh, none of whom uh, are uh, written in church history books, none of whom will get a second thought uh, to the theologians, but you um, cared enough about this church to record the far-reaching gospel reverberations in their life. We don't know them, no one will know them, but you know them, and one day we will meet with them and we will be in awe of how the gospel has changed their life. Father, I pray that we would be challenged by their example, from their example, and I pray that the gospel would have such reverberations in our hearts and in our lives that we would turn from our idols and that we would love your son primarily, and then in doing so that we would mimic him and want to be like him, and that we would find others who are pursuing him, who are running the race, who are a bit ahead of us, and that we would just take a hold of their shirt tail and learn from them and grow in them and in doing so that we would look behind us and see that there are people who are imitating and mimicking us and that we would uh, kind of just allow our hand to go backwards and to grab their hands and that we would take them along. And Father, not only that, but we would see those who are off the track. We would see those who are on the sidelines. We would see those who have no faith. They're not running the race because they don't know Christ. And as we're looking ahead and as we're looking backwards, that we would also look side to side, and that we would, um, so to speak, go and, and allow the gospel to reverberate into their life so that they can come run the race of faith with us and pursue Jesus together. May we do that. And as we're doing that, uh, help us to wait. Help us to wait eagerly, actively for your son. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, when he returns. And so may it be in my life and in the life of my brothers and sisters and in the life of Grace Bible Church. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.